So I've got a fear of heights. Yeah. Which usually manifests itself in, in buildings. Two-storey, semi-detached Two or three storeys, yeah. So, so actually, if I look out of that window right there, I, I have a little bit of a wobble. Are you okay in a plane? Yes. Is planes, it when you're connected to the ground, yes. you don't like heights? Planes are fine, oh. and I've jumped out of a plane to prove that point. But do you remember... We, sadly had a parachute on. We, <laughs> <laughs> you and I have been at the top of the Empire State Building. At the top of our business as well, haven't we? Wow, have we been <laughs> there the for, for many years. And you'll remember on that day, I was... I, I could yes. go to the edge. I, I had to yes. sit down. And you were a coward, basically. I was yes. a coward. Um, yeah. So, okay, don't demean people who obviously... No, I, I have a fear of heights, but not on that day important. on top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> Too romantic. Usually, I when I'm at the top of a, say for example, I don't, a self-aggrandized mountain, but I am connected to the ground yeah. and there is no sheer drop, it's just high, mm. I've got no issue. Mm. So I thought going up Snowdon would be fine because, it, you know, it's a gentle, gentle ascent and eventually at the top, you just stand at the top and whoop de do. But the last kind of 40 feet of Snowdon is quite sharply rising up ahead of you and it's got kind of spiral steps up to it and it was also cloudy so it looked like you were perched on top of the world and there was a sheer drop on every single side Mm. but I was feeling you know it's my birthday I'm gonna you know I'm gonna do something special so I went up to the top and immediately that I got up to the top I looked behind me and I thought I am not able to get down so whilst all these kind of hikers and climbers who (laughs) we'd taken the train so it'd taken us an hour and a half all these hikers and climbers who'd been scale this incredible uh, peak four and a half hours five hours of hiking up on what was eventually by the time you got to the top a really really cold day they were to find this guy dressed inappropriately no hiking gear whatsoever basically flip flops <laughs> what did you have on not the tutu again <laughs> hugging hugging the, the the central kind of summit point with my feet splayed out blocking anybody's attempts to get up and also not allowing them to go round to the other side and descent the other side. And so Gemma's standing there basically saying, listen, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry to apologise to all those people. Whilst I'm sitting there, I can't look up at these people to apologise because I'm basically in fetal position on the floor. <laughs> on, on, you know, one of the, the, the great high peaks of this nation. Yeah. <laughs> it's just me looking completely inappropriate. And basically the way that I had to get down was to shuffle round on my backside, round to the other side, where the descent was slightly less sheer mm. and basically you know like kids when they're toddlers and they can't go downstairs or like a dog with worms they, that type they, of yes, thing yeah. Exactly. They yeah. Go yeah, yeah, yeah. on their bum step by step I, I did that uh, atop one of the <laughs> things in this nation happy have birthday you, me have you gone, you, do your jeans now look like chaps today have you gone through the uh, backside <laughs> of them as you skidded down meanwhile Gemma is there just apologising to everybody and saying how can I help how can I help I just don't know just stay there was she uh, saying I'm, I'm, it's okay I'm, I'm marrying him in two weeks he won't be allowed out the house <laughs> she takes takes a photo of me looking like a, a frightened dog, and then we get down to the bottom. I said, "Did you take a photo at the summit?" And she said, "No, because I was you were basically crying." Yeah, but you, you wouldn't want that photo. Out. We couldn't put that on the mantelpiece, could so you? I sent her back up again to take a photo of the summit <laughs> with you not there. <laughs> with me not there, and I stayed down the bottom, basically just watching her go off into the clouds. And Why have you told us this story? You could have just kept it quiet. The idea you you meant to face your fears, aren't you? You meant to you I meant to do things that I don't that, like facing my fears. That take on the That's fear true. and prove that it's illogical. So as a fourteen-year-old, I went to see the film Anaconda because I'm terrified of snakes. Yeah, and it turned out that that was a bad move. Because because previously I was terrified that snakes might poison me or, or, or boa constrict me. Yes. And then from the film Anaconda, I became convinced that snakes would also eat me and swallow me whole. You might want to give snakes on a plane a miss then. That's a documentary, isn't it? I've heard about <laughs> That's <that>. true. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I always think facing your fears and failing is much better than not facing them and, and no. having regrets. Just ignore them. Just accept <laughs> that you're afraid of stuff and try to stay away from it. That's my advice. Because I, I really don't like spiders, but there's no way I put a tarantula on my palm. Would that solve my problem or make it worse? How would that help me? Do you not find with some... My thing with spiders is yeah. that you can stand on them. No matter how big they are, you can stand on them. Well, yeah, but you shouldn't do, should you? I'm, I'm not a big fan of... But you shouldn't kill... I never killed them. I it's never ki- killed them. It's kill or be killed. By a spider? Said. Yeah. Even I know they're not going to kill me. A it's a trapdoor one that bites you on the bottom. Or one of those black widows. Oh, that could kill you. They're nasty. Stand on them. Yeah. But the normal house spiders, they're, they're really long-legged and stuff, but they don't hurt you, do they? No, they I do just, not hurt you. Except emotionally. Yeah, they do. They cripple me. Can I suggest that you don't watch the movie Arachnophobia? I've seen Arachnophobia. It's fine. Is it? Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not afraid of spiders. You can stand on them. Would Chinch be fine with Arachnophobia? Probably not. Do you know you say you don't... Look, would you Would you handle a spider? If it was in the bath, would you scoop it up in your hands and throw it out the window? A normal house spider? Yes. Yeah. Or would you kill it? No one would kill it. Throw it out the window. Well, you put it in your hands. You'd scoop it up in your hands or, or a cup. If I can get a cup with a piece of paper on the top, that's that's. But why, why are you doing that if you're not afraid of spiders? Just pick it up. I just don't want to... Don't want to it's humane. Yeah. Spider-ain. I'd love it. It's easier as well. Spider-ain? Yes. It's quite hard... It's quite <laughs> hard to... Yeah, I know what it meant, but it's just wrong. It's quite hard to mm. pick, up, pick up a spider with your hands. Does that... Elusive. Just go for the throat, don't they? As soon as you go, make a move. What are you scared of? If Rory Rory ever succeeds Attenborough doing like Planet Earth, oh, that'd be amazing. Planet Earth three. The thing thing to remember about these graceful but venomous creatures (laughs) is you can just crush them with your foot. That's quite true. Basic logic. Are you not scared of anything? Yeah, loads. Yeah, loads of things. Yeah, creepy crawlies, extended the podcasts, dark, that yeah. type of thing. <laughs> Spending the too dark. Much. You're scared of the dark. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the dark. Artificial lights. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't like so? Do you have a lamp on at night? <laughs> Yeah, we, we have a light on which we, you know, make out is for the kids, but it's... it's <laughs> for you! <laughs> oh, my. So, scared of the dark, what are you scared of? Snakes and clowns. Snakes and clowns. Terrified of clowns. Oh, it's, I don't like spiders. Yeah, from, it's, from it's, come it's on, Stephen come King. on. Yeah, yeah, that it's is a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an absolute joke. That's, that's coming out again, a remake of that. Don't yeah, tell me that. You yeah. should haunt my dreams. And yeah. snakes on a plane. Yeah, and, and you're scared and of... Spiders and commitment. And heights and roller coasters. No, heights, I've actually cured. You know what cured me? It might be in just throwing yourself in. I took the roof off my house and I, I helped them put all the tiles back on when it was redone. Mm. And just being, had to do it. This I had was, no choice. But this was a bungalow, by the way. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Define, took the roof off your house. Is this some sort of chemistry experiment gone wrong? Is it? <laughs> no, no. We, Superman we took, lifted it. You know the roof that was on the house? We took it off the house, extended the house up, and then put a roof back on it again. Right. But I had to help Jeff the joiner put it, and he just said, just, and I had no choice but to go up on the roof, and there's no way, six months before, I'd have been contemplating, I just got on with it, and was just macho. You didn't have a Rod Hall incident? No. <laughs> That's in the, don't say that. Of course I didn't. My face has always looked like this. I didn't fall and land on my driveway. Um, you are scared of flying as well? No, no, that's been cured. That's been cured yep, as well? that's been cured. I remember the first time I went, went on, a, oh. on a flight with you, you basically gripping the seat in front like you were lifting the yes. roof off your ankles. <laughs> no, that's, been, that's been, it's been cured again. So how did you get to all the European away games and international commitments when you were playing? Impure. What international? Oh, yeah, those games. Moldova. Um, went by bike. <laughs> I we swam there. Um, I, yeah, I just had to, I realised I had to do it, but I hated it. But now I actually quite enjoy it. Who do you sit, sit, sit next to on the plane? My wife. 
No. Oh, don't well, smell over with England. Uh, my wife. Oh no. Uh, no one sat next to me because no one really liked me very much. Oh, that's really oh. sad. Yeah, I, I had six to myself. On that slightly sad but uh, massively true note, um, welcome to Set Piece Menu. This is the podcast where four friends talk football over food, which will, over the next few weeks, be providing you with some summer fare. Owing to the fact that between now and a month's time, there will be one birthday. Mine, that's true, yes. One wedding. Yours. And several jaunts to Portugal. Yes. We thought we'd uh, still pepper your own moments of significance with our weekly contribution to society, but with a difference. The next few shows will be a many-limbed discussion of one topic, the movie adaptation of a burgeoning TV series, if you will, albeit way too soon to be wanted and coming from logistical necessity rather than any sort of popular demand. So joining me, Hugh Ferris, are these people categorised by their positions of responsibility in the upcoming... Ferris Kumar nuptials. Rory Smith, <laughs> reader of Ceremony Reading. So this is in ascending order, yeah? Uh, yes. No, descending order, obviously. <laughs> Andy Hinchcliffe, Usher. Uh, you're going to be organising people for the photograph. Oh, the singer. Oh, I thought I was singing, like Usher. No. And oh. Steve Wyeth, one of two best men. Responsible enough to be one of two, but not quite responsible enough to take on the entire duty myself. No, do, you, right. do you feel, Steve, that you are the best of the best men, though? Would you say you are a better man than... Who, who's the, who's is who it else Matt? Is to, he is is it, yes, Matt. He is quite yeah. competitive. So, so I, the have, the, I be have the yes. benefit of being geographically much closer to the groom. So, yeah, I feel okay. as though, yeah, okay. I'm the senior. He's member. signing okay. the register. The other one is doing the rings. He doesn't even got a name. The yeah, other one. Do you know why that? Do you know why that is? Is because he doesn't trust me yeah. to remember the rings, and he doesn't think Billy's handwriting is good enough to sign the register. Honestly, good you God. See that so he made, he's, he's made it sound as though he's agonised over this decision, but it's just pragmatism. They're like bride, groom, witness one, witness two. What? <laughs> <laughs> whereas, whereas Steve Wyeth, obviously famed, famed telegrapher. <laughs> exactly. You, you are, actually, his birthday card is somewhere nearby. I'll show you. It's excellent writing. Hughes also had a birthday, which he's just dropped yeah, in. Yeah, just yeah, dropped yeah. in there. Yeah. The cards are behind you. So thanks, thanks for adding your two. I didn't there. know when your birthday was. <laughs> when was yeah. your birthday? Um, the same day it is for the last 15 years that you've known me. Now, our little mini-series will be brought to you in association uh, with an extravagant, long-winded of pizza and tart. So, um, part one, uh, does anybody have any objection to the pizzas of choice as purchased with helpful price reduction from Tesco? They are as follows as I... These are Tesco finest at the very least, aren't they? Spicy Italian meats, ham, mushroom and mascarpone, spicy chicken and char-grilled pepper. Everybody happy with those? They're all fine. Yeah, Yeah, they'll do. do. I feel as though we really should be shopping elsewhere than Tesco, to be honest. Uh, Well, when it's Tesco finest, you know, Mm, you're okay. I don't know. know. And when it's money off, when we were were at Chinch's, it was all M&S food. Could you not go to Booth's and Salford's? No, I haven't been in Salford for quite some time because of my birthday that I've just thank you uh, to everybody for all your tweets and emails over the last week or so uh, particular mentions right now to Gillian Tom Waterman Alexander Ward Amadeep Singh and Tyler Hall many of your topic suggestions are in our back pocket for the pods that follow the summer thank you for those and also to both Sam Crocker and Edward Preluchki I hope I've got that right Edward you have a Z and a Y next to each other in your name which makes it very difficult for me to understand how to pronounce it uh, two of the many thoughtful responses that we've had to our second teams episode that's uh, number 24 by the way do seek it out along with all the others if you don't want to read a book on the beach this summer try a set piece menu binge instead in the meantime you can continue to get in touch at set piece menu on twitter and set piece menu at gmail.com it'll be a while we have to admit before you get a mention on the podcast itself but we will be forever active on social media and email as well so 
don't let that stop you. And a little reminder also to subscribe, review, rate, and tell your friends as well. Uh, we could provide the icebreaker, for example, to that awkward conversation you need to have with your sister's new boyfriend while at a family barbecue. So, you know, we do have a use. That is a really weirdly specific use. Mm. Well, you have know, you already come across this might problem? have a new boyfriend. And you say, so what do you like? You like football? Ah, well, let me tell you about a podcast. It's completely natural. My sister's unlucky in love. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So you will you never... She's quite ugly. So if anyone would like to, to go out with my sister, uh, feel free to drop us an email. What would you give her out of 10? Is she, is she a Bo Derek 10 or... What, what, what we're talking about? Oh, Derek, get more up-to-date references. Um, God's sake. Is she a Beyonce 10? Where, what would she's you give... She's my sister, I don't know. You do know. You were just about to pull a, pluck a number out of the air. Four. I think, I think she's very pretty. Oh, thank you. You, you, you think Rory is incredibly handsome. He is true. gorgeous. And he has a bit of a and tan there is a as well. strong family resemblance between oh, you Rory and Rachel. Does so yeah. she have a beard as well? Uh, at, at times, we all, oh, we excellent. all struggle. Excellent. So then to our subject, which may or may not be worthy of our extended conversation, and it comes with an apology also to our listeners from abroad, because it is this. What is... English football. A beautifully open-ended question, I think you'll agree, but over the next few shows we'll attempt to break it down and probably prove a point made rather well by The Guardian's Barney Roney recently uh, when he said this, the search for a style, a culture, an identity. This is, in effect, England's identity. So we'll start this week by asking, what do we mean by English football? When did it exist, even if it did exist. So this is the historical part. If only we had someone here who'd written a historical book about football, mm. an Englishman. One that, one that had come close to winning awards, for yes, example. Yes, come yeah. close. It's yeah. always nice to say the come close. It's nice to be nominated. Nice won the award. Really Damn Jeffrey Diva. History, the, the long history of the game. Yes, but mm. could you do it in less than 300 pages this time? Uh, yes. So I think, I think you probably can identify a period in which English football existed as, a, as we think of it. And it's, I think it's maybe important to point out to everybody that it's different to all of us, what, what we think of when we, when we say English football. But I think you can probably tell what it was, what the overall kind of collective acceptance of what English football looked like from the exceptions to it. So things like Vic Buckingham's teams, Arthur Rowe's teams in the 50s and 60s who were playing a push-and-run football that was seen as being deeply modern, hugely different, inspired by the Hungarians, the Magic Magyars of 53. Although Arthur Rowe, this is complicated, Arthur Rowe predated the Magyars but had studied in Hungary so he had many of the same influences. That style of football was novel in the 50s, which means I think you can say quite rightly, before that time, English football was relatively direct. It involved a lot of running around. Uh, there was a commitment that did not did not end, that I think probably still holds, to, holds true today, wasn't particularly concerned with things like passing. We know that because in the 18, 70s and 80s, the Scots invented passing, and that was alien to the English. The English played football in a much more kind of, yeah, what we'd recognise as long ball, kind of hit and hope style. That was English football. It probably had a bit more to the... Kind of the positioning sense of rugby, I guess. So rather kick than and chase kind of stuff. Kick and chase, a, a yeah. territorial aspect. Yeah, you got the ball forward. You got yeah. the ball forward. Whereas the, the Strots, Queen's Park particularly, were kind of predisposed to pass it around, which the English thought was odd. Um, but even, even as through the stylistic changes, I think certain things held true. And they were that you didn't waste time keeping the ball for the sake of keeping the ball. The general aim was to go forward at all times even when the game was lost, which is a hugely creditable thing, uh, and that it wasn't particularly, I don't want to say subtle or beautiful, because there were elements of subtlety and beauty within it, but it was largely 
its defining characteristic was its dynamism. I think that's what I'd say. So let's let's break this down to um, the kind of the aspects of pre-match and during the match. So you mentioned about how they were in their training mm-hmm. very much disposed to the simply physically getting people ready, running, 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 which actually, if you even go as far as the 1980s and mm-hmm. 90s, when yeah, you yeah. were doing pre-season, yeah, yeah. it was all about running, running, running. So there is an aspect that way back when, we get into the point where it's now, you know, 100 years ago, that actually it was still being replicated 80 years afterwards. So that aspect, is that is that particularly English? So that's a slightly different, that's a slightly different... Um aspect of the question I think so English football the, the style direct hard running all that stuff English football the concept that sounds really pretentious the big difference to me in writing the book the book is Mister it's available from all booksellers I, d- I need to make a uh, note of that Mister what kind of price are we talking is it reasonably uh, priced recommended retail price uh, I would which say. is I don't uh, know how much it costs actually I've got loads of free copies do you want one have you it depends, it depends on your budget it yeah. does. Yeah. Get it in hardback. Yeah. Hardback, pa- lovely, paperback, it? Yeah. or you can yeah. just d- download it to your uh, electronic device. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Is there a Kindle version? I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if you can. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, the, um, <laughs> or you can send me a check, and I'll send <laughs> oh, you a sign no, 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 for no, any no, number, no. Of any, any number of pounds, <laughs> um, or currency of your choice. Well, that, cu- that cuts out some of the overheads, doesn't <laughs> it? it does, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. So concept, the concept of the concept. I like this. The thing that kind of struck me. The concept of bribing the author is the thing that struck me in writing the book, and it wasn't something that I went into writing the book thinking it was something that kind of came out through the research and what have you, is that the defining characteristic of English football as a, as a conceptual thing was that it's not something that could be learned. That's how England approached football right up, I think, until Chinch's day. And when obviously, as the, when the great thing to descended from on high. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. That yes. will be in part two. The, the second <laughs> coming. And this is probably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it a theme we'll come back to, by which I mean I will repeat myself over the next four episodes. But I think if you looked at the way that, the, that foreign countries look at football, because it was something they learned from the English, or from the British, that... It, they always adopted the stance of students. They always felt this is something we have to learn. How can we refine it? How can we make it better? How can we understand it more? Whereas the English, because it had kind of grown organically within England from all those, like the Ashbourne game and the um, the ball games in Northern Scotland and all that stuff, it was always something that was kind of presented as a whole. It was complete. So yeah, the train passing it down. Yes, yeah, the trainers. My granddad played for Coventry and Birmingham, and. They didn't do any training with the ball during the week because the idea was that the ball, if you didn't have the ball during the week, you would want it more on a Saturday. That's a really English thing. You want the ball. How much do you want it? That's an important characteristic of English football as well. The trainers were there to keep you fit, to give you a massage. Uh, they might do a little bit of kind of shoot sh- that Sunday league practice where that was a Sunday league warm up where everyone runs onto the pitch, runs around for a bit, sprints across, and then does some shooting. <laughs> that was. That was um, You've watched me training. <laughs> but that's the, that was the limit of what managers did until. I mean, even I mean, I, I'm not an expert on, Her, on like Herbert Chapman, but I think for a long, long time, what most managers did was, what coaches did, was they were trainers, they got their players fit, that's what they were there to do, the physiotherapists. Well, I came into the game, what, mid-80s, 86-87, and pre-season, we didn't see the ball for two weeks. Right? It wasn't the done thing, we ran and ran and ran, we get you fit, fit, fit for two weeks, then we might start playing a bit of football, get the balls out. So they were still doing that in the yeah. mid-1980s. So again, this was clearly the fitness aspect of 
of the game. But it's prioritising the things that English football thinks about itself. So it was it was hard running, it was demanding, it was a work ethic, it was industry. It was industry so rather the, than art. So were the coaches, this was how the game is played, so the coaches just followed that. It wasn't the coach saying, wait a minute. Well, there were no tactics. This is not really working very well. There was no tactical innovation. You, pay, you played 2-3-5, the WM, or 2-3-5, then the WM. They were the formations. Yeah. Everyone just played them. Yeah. And to the extent that it was kind of considered cheating not to. So when you had occasional coaches who came along and said, actually, we're going to do this. The that wasn't the done thing. The reaction was, this is unsportsmanlike. Man-marking, unsportsmanlike. Having your winners track back to cover full cover fullbacks, unsportsmanlike. It wasn't. It was like rugby in the same way. The thing that annoys me That's with rugby. Ama- it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. You are amazing. <laughs> Thanks, James. But with rugby, the thing, the reason I think this is a slight tangent, but the reason, and I'm conscious I've been speaking for about five minutes, but that's okay. We tried to interrupt. The, um, this is very much your section. <laughs> yeah, that's true. you're, you're yeah. going to have to remain silent part for the two, other part. Shut it, Smith. Heavy. <laughs> the um, thing that annoys me with rugby, and the reason I think football is a superior sport. Is that oh, that's going to get me in trouble? That's oh, seventy twenty <laughs> at gmail.com. Theo Rory. They will be equal sports when a rugby team is losing and the coach thinks we're going to take off our number eight and put on another winner. Yeah. You don't. There's no change in the formation of rugby. That's true, but there's a set piece aspect. There is scrums and lineouts where they would be. You have to. Yeah. Disadvantage. You'd be disadvantaged. It might not be. But that ability to switch the emphasis of how you play doesn't exist in rugby. You you play rugby the way you play rugby. Have you seen the All Blacks play rugby? I have seen the All Blacks play rugby. They play rugby on another level. Do they play how European rugby? Do they play with three centres? No, but at times they could possibly do that. Anyway, anyway, players, but anyway, they have that ability. But, yeah, yeah, football you're was talking about total football on a rugby field, almost total rugby, as in they are tugby, 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 yes, interchangeable in the way that we were talking yes, about. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to stave this off, I played rugby for for 15 years, so it's not that I have no exposure to it. But what were you the water boy? There's not a mark on you. <laughs> I was a, you were in the scrum, were you? I was you? a flanker. I bet you were a total <laughs> flanker. Carry on. Anyway, the um, a tanker. <laughs> the um, yeah. Football was very much like that for the first 50, 60 years of its professional incarnation. It was, you played in your position, you did what your position said, nothing changed. There was a switch from 235 to WM, which is a a very, very subtle transition, uh, documented in Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid, another excellent book, not quite as good as Mr., (laughs) but has made a lot more money. Uh, The... Whereas, and and then you started to get tactical, tactical innovation. So the coaches weren't doing tactics, and they didn't think you could teach technique. The the assumption was that if you'd made it to a professional team, you were as good at football as you were going to be. So the only thing they could improve, the only marginal gain, was to make you fitter. So that's what coaches did. So there was no sense of learning football, and I think that's crucial. Two things. Firstly, not to do your publicity for you, but there is a Kindle version of your book available, and perhaps it would have made as much money as inverting the pyramid if you were able to push that. If you had that knowledge <laughs> at your disposal. Yeah, okay, yeah. Is when you hear people talking about English football, are that, is there a is there a dividing point sort of like Hillsborough? And the emergence of the Premier League. Are people, when people are referring to English football, are they talking about before those sort of two things? And then, so, so prior to, to, the, to the, the Premier League, for example, we were English football was resistant to outside ideas. And then when money came flooding into the game at the beginning of the nineties and all seater stadiums, and the, 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 the game became less sanitised, and suddenly we were importing loads of ideas because I, I think when, when people lament about how the game has changed older football fans they're effectively saying I preferred football 
before the Premier League. And we'll talk about the Premier League and what changed in the next part. But perhaps if we go to what Steve was saying about prior to that, is is that a significant chunk of history to all to almost be conveyed as one Yeah, part. and I've sort of lumped together a yeah. century's worth of, of English football. I was going to ask you about the 66 World Cup win. The, the change from, say, how things were, the, the football that you talked about, the way it was played, it was unsportsmanlike, to play it any other way, there must have been some kind of change to get to kind of the mid-60s. The, the change must have been how because formations were starting to yeah. change, weren't so, they? And the, well, the Ramsey's winless wonders were effectively a 4-2-4 mm-hmm. with two in, inverted winners, basically, is what we, how we describe it now, if we were being pretentious. Uh, the, yes, the formations had started to change. The Brazilians had started playing with a, a, a back four in sort of late 40s, early 50s. I think they won. The, they certainly won the 1958 World Cup yeah, with a back yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, it was after the American Atso in 1950 that they started that they started to change. So there were there were tactics starting to come into the game. Although my dad, that great uh, uh, recaller of history because he's old, mm. <laughs> will tell you that even until the 70s, when they, when they put up the formations on, a t- on the TV mm. to before a game, still in 2-3-5. Really? They hadn't, they hadn't recognised that 4-4-2 was how it was being played. They kind of knew it was, but it was assumed that everyone was lining up in 2-3-5 and then they'd move into different positions. Oh. That's the basic formation. Was that not, you know, from a sort of little bit of experience of working in, in broadcasting, that's probably because they were, they were treating the viewers... Yeah. Almost as though they didn't have an appreciation of that transition, so it was easier for the viewer to understand it, that it was be, that they were lining up like that than than to bamboozle people with this sort of yeah. new innovation that only those sort of closely associated with the game would know. That was the level of if you, it's, that's probably the equivalent. I think that's probably right, and the it's the equivalent now of talking to people about XG or relatively sophisticated st- sort of statistics. I can never say never say that word. <laughs> Just say why, stats. It's why I refuse to accept it's a concept. The um, <laughs> I just can't say it's stats-based analysis, analytics. They, TV companies are really conscious that they don't want to kind of confuse or befuddle viewers with that, even though a lot of the viewers will have an understanding of it. And it would be the same with formations in the 60s, that they thought, well, the viewers won't understand if we say they're playing a, a 4-2-4, so we'll just present it as a 2-3-5. Mm. And I think that was probably, that was probably the equivalent. So it, there were up to 66, which is you can make a case as the worst thing that ever happened to English football, winning the World Cup in 1966. But the it's quite a, con- quite a convoluted case, so I won't do it now. Mm-hmm. Read the book, it's in there. Mm. Um, there, w- there had started to be a lot of tactical developments, but still, in most cases... The, uh, did this all stem from you talking about Brazil changing that, taking the game yeah. and, and adapting it? Did, we, did that then filter back into no, it? And then th- no, because after World Cup in the 1950s, a couple of England players volunteered to go to Brazil or to stay in Brazil, which is why I think it's 1950, to find out about the way they were playing football. Because England had had, had this disastrous tournament and the Brazilians, although they lost in the final, they lost to another South American team. They were clearly superior. They volunteered to stay out and, and find out, essentially as a sort of impromptu task force, to bring lessons back. And the FA said they weren't interested in the slightest. So there was an acceptance within the game that football was changing and had changed elsewhere and that we could learn something from it but the institutions and that's the, people always say the FA but it was the football lead as well the clubs were if anything more resistant to change than the FA were they did not want to hear it because football was incredibly financially successful in the 1950s they were getting huge audience, huge crowds it was they had in England theoretically had a great team the team between 1945 and 1950 one of the best England teams of all time there was no reason 
to change anything. And that it's in that period, I think, that crucially English football kind of fell behind. But you can tell from from all the things they were trying to learn what English football was. And it, it's that kind of conception of English football that I think we mean when we say this is what English football is like. So is another characteristic of English football arrogance? Are we talk Because there was resistance to outside ideas during the, you know, the, the middle of the previous century, the, the, you know, just that firm belief, despite any evidence to the contrary, that, that what we were doing in England was the way that it should be done. And it didn't matter that, you know, we weren't succeeding in, in World Cups on foreign soil. It didn't matter that coaches were going, having to take their innovative ideas abroad. And, and, you know, and that seems to have almost continued, you know, the best league in the world kind of stuff. It almost, it seems to be as though English football can't wake up to the idea or never has been able to wake up to the idea that, that, that it isn't the best version of the game available. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that's, that has always, there has always been that, that conceit in England that it is in some way the best football available. So it used to be the national team until, until the Hungarians, certainly. It was the case that England had never lost on home soil, so it was always assumed that when they lost ab- ab- abroad, it was because the foreigners had poisoned them, <laughs> or because of Brexit. Or <laughs> the, that was the, one of the reasons why they didn't enter the World Cup until 1950, because yeah. they didn't think it was an important enough competition yeah, for them to be a part And then of. when you got, in 1934, when Italy came to Highbury to play as world champions, the English press dressed it up as, as a meeting of the genuine... The, the, the world champions and the genuine world champions who were obviously England. And England won, although it was much closer, they got a bit of a scare and it was much closer than they thought it would be and that kind of shocked them. Um, a bit like the cat that just leapt onto the yeah, table. I have just been attacked yes. by a cat. You, you may Hello, have heard some of the mewing that's been going on because I'm not giving one of the two cats in residence enough attention. The, um, but yeah, I think it, arrogance is a big word and the and I'm, I, I think I shied away from it in, when, when doing the book and I probably still... I still think it's a bit much because there were individuals within that who wanted to learn because... Yeah, not, the, not, not, not individuals, no, no, but, but, collect, uh, the, but also the, the, there were collective there, there, there were enough periods when England had a right to think it was the best, the best football in the world to make it kind of legitimate. So before 53, when the Magyars come and, and beat England at Wembley, humiliate England at Wembley, uh, they'd never lost at home. They tended to smash most international sides they came across. So there was a reason to believe. And it probably was, to be honest, until 1950, you can make a case that English football probably was the best in the world. Then 66 comes along. Mm they win the World Cup. The reason I think that that was bad is because I think that convinced English football that the process of change that had already started did not need to continue, which meant that England got one World Cup, this amazing moment, but it basically banjaxed it for the next 30, 40 years. And then in the 70s, when the national team are are really struggling, when other countries, you know, the Dutch are producing total football. There's that amazing Bayern team that wins three European Cups in a row when the Italians are dominant, when Brazil's producing all these players. Argentina's, you know, got this incredible football culture. To be fair to the English, between 77 and 82, they won the European Cup every single year, I think. Liverpool, 77 and 78. Forest, Forest 79, yeah, 80. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Liverpool, 81. Villa, 82. Villa, 82. Yeah, yeah. Every single year, you've got this incredibly unhealthy football culture ravaged by hooliganism where the the advances that are being made elsewhere are just being ignored. But to be fair to the English, their teams are winning the European Cup every year. So you can see why they didn't think they needed to change. And, and I, it wasn't just the same team. It, it was know, different teams, yeah. so it suggests a strength in depth. And I think you can make the case that 
English football was never weak enough that to, to recognise its own weakness, if you see what I mean. But you, in answer to a question ages ago, I'm going to stop talking now. I do think, to an extent, you can take English football 1888 to 1988 as one pretty much homogenous block. There are, there are changes, obviously, but the change that's happened since then is much more rapid, much more significant, much more kind of revolutionary than any changes that happened in between, in, in the middle of that 100 years, I would say. I was just wondering whether it is arrogance is too strong a term. Maybe football was a reflection of English or British society at that time as well. You come out of a world war, we feel we're doing everything right because of what happened there. So we follow a path, whether it be in sport or in life, that we're English. So mm. everything we do, it doesn't matter what anyone else does and how successful we are, we are still, this is our way and we're not going to change it. But I'm just amazed, you're abs- I think you're absolutely right, it goes on for far longer than I ever appreciated the, the way that maybe we thought about football, but is that a reflection maybe of how society was at that time as well? I think it is, This is the English way and we stick to it. But the other, and I think that's probably right, and there was a contentment I think with the way Britain was There's, I can't remember which book I found it in this weird dusty tome talking about the stadiums that were built post-war which is really interesting hmm. and a guy complaining to say that the, the England built this big raft of stadiums immediately after the Second World War but didn't think to make them any different to the stadiums it had built before the before the war, and I guess you do, this is because that's how football. Well, this is how we, this is how, this this is is how we do it. In. This is how we house the fans that watch our game. And the way, the way we do it in sport as in life has been vindicated by our victory in the war. Mm. So why would we change? Yes, which meant that the stadiums that were built immediately post-war kind of needed replacing by sort of 1960 because they were based on old designs. No one had thought to do something to do anything different. Whereas if you look abroad, they were building bigger more interesting kind of better facilities mm. whereas England was just like yeah you, you shove up four stands you put a roof on it and you herd them in but the which I thought was a really interesting way of uh, the architecture Never, yes, architecture yeah, yeah. reflects yeah, yeah. sport but the other thing that's hugely important with all British history in the 20th century is the empire mm. and it's the refusal to understand that the empire has gone and that Britain has to find a new place in the world there's this this assumption that because of the empire, which by 1950 mm. has gone it's almost an gone completely, that we've, we've there's an imperial yeah, attitude, yeah, yeah. a sort of colonial attitude, that we are the people who dispense everything to the world. We don't need to learn anything from the world. And I think that that was hugely true in football. There was nothing... Yeah, and it, it, it comes with the Premier League, but there was, n- there was nothing that we could learn. And if you think, think about the way we talk about... And we're all in our 30s or more change 30s plus you're <laughs> clinging on to your 30s, 30s looking to 30s, 30s looking <laughs> as we record this episode I'm not even 35 I'm essentially in my 20s this is not about your age <laughs> this is about English football <laughs> this is nothing to do with your conceited view of how gorgeous you are <laughs> talk about English football but if, you think about, <laughs> if you think about the way that we, we talk about foreign countries playing football the, it's almost like they are atomized, isolated things that we can't hope to mimic or learn from. So the Italians are defensive, but we wouldn't want to be like that because that's the cynical Italians. And the Brazilians play like they're on the beach, but we can't do that because we don't have any beaches. So it's a cultural, it's, a, it's something we don't want to have that part of their it's culture in, in the English game. It's an understandable product yeah. of the people, the times, mm, yes. and the country. So it's intrinsically linked to where it comes from. So the mm. Dutch are free-flowing because they're all smoking mm. weed. And, <laughs> the, uh, and the Germans are uh, efficient because it's Germany. And they yeah, make yeah. cars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and the yeah, and, and you know the Spanish are trying to pass it about because we're lazy and we want to have a siesta. And it's it's as though if if you was, if if your intellectual standpoint is that the football culture 
comes innately from where you are from, who you are, your your national identity, mm. then there is nothing that can be learned. And that's what England didn't th- didn't think it could do. It didn't think it could learn anything. It, football looked like this, so that's how football has to look. And it had that's a good thing and a bad thing, because English football has incredible traits that people across the world really admire. And it is exciting, and it is, and it has always been attractive. And I, I was like, I was watching a video of Chris Waddle the other day. Chris Waddle was an amazing footballer. Like diamond lights. <laughs> it was diamond lights. <laughs> and but you know, it's it's getting the ball wide and putting crosses in, and, yeah, and yeah. it's that kind of physical confrontation. And it's and it's tough, and it and it it's tackles, and it's exciting, and it's blood, and it's thunder, and spit, and sawdust. Mm. And people love that. And yeah. we shouldn't pretend that that's a bad thing. But there were other things to learn that we ignored because we were so determined to prioritise the things we already had. And you would say we started off the conversation by saying that your pre-season was very much similar to the way that trainers trained people's kind of the physicality element of, of football way back when, he mm. says, in a very vague way. But you are a product of the way that we have described English football. So yeah. you are about bombing down the left wing to try and get crosses in and those crosses my god they were sensational they were they were but undefendable do, many people do say you, do you feel like <laughs> indefensible <you are> indefensible <laughs> yeah. my shorts were indefensible so are you are getting to the point of saying that Andy is a product of English arrogance you are, what no are you, are you yeah, a yeah, yeah. and do you feel like that your game was a product of everything that we've just been speaking about for all the good and all the, the, the bad that we've also I just find it, like. Yeah, I just find it really funny. You go all the way back, not all the way back, say you go back 60 years and the way that they got there. T- and that, just think, I've never really thought about the kind of train that we did, but I, I have maybe in the last five years, you saw how I was lucky enough to play at a time when things did start to change, when they mm. talked about the quality of your training, about your diet, about doing and getting trained specifically for the job that you do. When I first started playing, there wasn't any of that. It was goalkeepers to centre forwards, just we ran you until you were sick, dead after day after day for literally two weeks so presumably that's what they were doing way back when yeah so there hadn't been that this is the mid-ages even though it is a long time ago you'd think well surely football would have worked out that this is not really that effective but maybe like saying off the back of that really great period in europe for english clubs maybe they thought well why would we change it we're being successful here the national team aren't winning anything but our, our domestic clubs are doing well so just continue to run and run and eventually at the end of the 80s going into the 90s things started to change but a lot of foreign players were coming into the game foreign coaches so the thinking started to change and we'll talk about how it changed and your perspective of it from within the Premier League in a moment mm. or indeed in part two but I want to finish off this part of the conversation um, with referring back to an excellent book that we've been speaking about a few times called Mister and the idea was uh, some of the some of the Yes, the product was overarching and very powerful, but some of those individuals within that product who had to find work elsewhere had an incredible effect on world football. And even though it's not, or they weren't teaching or training players in the way that we assume English football is and was, they are still very much regarded as products of the English football system by those countries, even though they were propagating a kind of football that wasn't seen back here. Yeah, they were, they'd been exiled from, from English football, but they were th- their respect was earned because they were English. And this, it's a, it was a very different world in huge, obviously huge numbers of ways. But uh, William Garbutt, who's probably the father of Italian football, and you can do this for every country. You can say the father of this football, this football, and this football is English. They're all English. England should never be ashamed of its, of its role in, in spreading the game. To the extent that I think you can directly link Pep Guardiola to Jimmy Hogan, who was the the guy who inspired Hungarian and Austrian football and the the, the Austrian wonder team of the twenties and, and the Magyars in the thirties and fifties, 
that's there is a direct causal link between those two people. So the most modern version of football that we have, which is Guardiola's football, is English inspired. He's brought it back and he's refined it and it's better and it's different, it's more complicated, but it's it's inspired by English football. But Garbert used to wear um, like a three-piece tweed suit in Naples in the summer because <laughs> that made him look English yeah, yeah, and his yeah. authority was his Englishness. So they got jobs because they were English. We were seen as being the experts. We were the teachers and the foreign countries were the students. And that for a long time, that was true, that England did have a more advanced football culture than anywhere else because it had the first one. The problem comes that the students learnt a lot and, and learnt they were quickly, willing to learn. willing to learn. And that gives you a mindset of, all right, we've learnt this, we've learnt this, but maybe we could do it differently. The students challenge things. Professors don't. Professors propagate their beliefs. Students challenge things. And that's how, how knowledge works. That That's how we push on. And in football, it's true that we we, we just for, assumed we'd always be the professors. Why was there no place for these coaches in England? Because they didn't believe. Because they, the, the, the individuals themselves believed you could... Partly it was economic, that mm-hmm. th- because there weren't that many jobs in management, because you just needed a guy to make sure everyone was running every day. Oh, exactly, yeah. The so they, but they must have had thoughts and ideas that they yeah. then transmitted to the, exactly. to the foreign countries. But they, they, they're so intransigent in, in this country that it was never going to work. They're never going to get jobs and never be able yeah. to implement what they wanted to do. So yeah. they had to go abroad to do it. Exactly. Jimmy Hogan, who's the most famous of them, wrote in the Athletic News that a series of letters bemoaning his, his attempts to speak to people at the clubs and again it's the FA are always blamed but the clubs have to take just as much responsibility mm-hmm. bemoaning the fact that he couldn't that no one wanted him to, to come in and, and train players in their technique in their in their tactical positioning and think of what we now call tactical positioning in accelerating their understanding of the game there was no kind of demand for that and if you have these people who did have these ideas about what you could do mm-hmm. some of them went abroad just, just they got they could that's how they could make money they'd retired as players they, there were no jobs in coaching in, in britain so you had to go abroad if you wanted to continue to earn money from your football but a lot of them went out, went out because they had ideas and england wasn't a place for ideas so have we found an answer to this do we have a blueprint for what english football is i think i don't know if we, we have a now. blueprint for what english football is but i think we have a um, we maybe have a, a time frame for when english football was still what English what we mean by that phrase English football right. when it had those those pure values of what it had and not always for good and not always for mm-hmm. bad those undiluted English values I think we t- you can probably say that until as Steve said the advent of the Premier League English football was pretty much as it had always been and a good point uh, at which to end part one of what is English football the Mr edition. Uh, Resistance to change and innovation, just enough success to think that they were right all along. A product of Britain's place in the world and football's place in history as well. While if there was maybe a little bit of arrogance at home, abroad, there was still a great respect for what it stood for. We'll ask how it has changed, whether that's for the better or the worse in part two. So join us again for that. In the meantime, please do subscribe, share, rate and review us as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Um, Also, you can follow us on Twitter at setpiecemenu. You can email Email us at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We should warn you, there will be a soccer story, but because we're recording a chunk of these, I think it's important that we build up to what will be a sensational tale uh, from Andy's playing days. From me, sensational. It it will be sensational. Uh, You'll have to wait a little bit longer for that. It will round off our discussion Mm. with um, a beautiful peach-coloured ribbon, which currently preparing for the uh, wedding in this house, there is a great surplus of. So thanks to Steve, Rory and Andy, and to you for listening. Uh, We'll be back with another set piece menu 
new SummerSlam edition number two for you to enjoy very, very soon. We need to get these pizzas in the oven. I went to SummerSlam 1992. Yes, Wembley. I know you did. Yeah, you Have we talked about this before? Would you say that this, this what we're doing at the moment is <coughs> on an equal footing to the, the great standing of SummerSlam 1992? This will have a better, a better main well, event. There's not urine all over the floor to start with, is there? I'm sure there was a lot of that going on, wasn't there? Not that I remember. Yeah, there's, there was. Hang on a minute. You're saying there's urine on the floor here? No, I'm saying there isn't. There. That's the big difference. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the main there's difference was yeah, yeah. shorter haircuts. The main, and the, cat culturally, urine, this is, culturally, this is more relevant. You're yeah. saying that the main difference between Hugh's house yes. and a stadium full of wrestling fans is that there's there's less urine, urine on the floor. <laughs> yes. I guarantee nothing else. there'll be different. more urine on the floor of the auditorium or wherever they hold these meetings of stupidity <laughs> compared to Hughes' house. What were you saying about English football arrogance? There it there is. Know, yeah. So rugby, we've alienated them and, uh, mm. and wrestling fans. Not alienated rugby, I just highlighted the great flaw in their stupid game. What? I'm going to ring Richie McCaw, right? And he's going to come round and like take him. you out. I like Richie Not McCaw. for a drink.